I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Origins of the Modern Public. During the 16th and 17th centuries, a steady stream of royal proclamations warned the people of England not to intermeddle, as one such proclamation put it, in affairs of state. What was worrying the kings and queens of England was the spread of political information, and with it, the sense that their subjects had the right to form an opinion on the questions of the day. You begin to get the idea that the private citizen has a duty to participate in public affairs. Part of this duty to participate in public affairs is a duty to know the news and pass it on. And this is, in its implications, you know, deeply subversive. It is, you know, citizens claiming the right to know, to read, to write about the king's business, the government's business. The spread of news and an informed public will be our subject in the first part of today's program. Then we'll turn to the 18th century, when public discussion reached a critical mass and produced what German philosopher Jürgen Habermas calls the bourgeois public sphere. Some have seen this period as a golden age, when public opinion was formed by rational debate and mass media hadn't yet spoiled the party. But we'll hear that what was once known as the age of reason is now regarded by historians as no more reasonable than any other age. I think the work that we've done demonstrates that there never was a golden age for the bourgeois public sphere, and that it was from the very moment of its inception corrupt. And therefore, that golden age, that enlightenment ideal, it just never existed. The real world of the bourgeois public sphere and the beginnings of news culture, today on Ideas, as we continue with David Cayley's series on the origins of the modern public. Here's David Cayley. In an article called News and Doubt in Early Modern Culture, historian Brendan Dooley has argued that people in 17th century Europe underwent what he calls a skeptical crisis. Sources of news were multiplying rapidly. Just between 1641 and 1659, Dooley says, over 350 news publications appeared in England alone, but there was radical uncertainty about whom and what to believe. To some, like Milanese satirist and historian Gregorio Leti, the new atmosphere of discussion and contention was good because it reduced reverence for authority. Tyrants tremble, Leti says, when they see their people with their tongues wagging. Royalists generally took the opposite view. Writing advice for England's Charles II, William Cavendish laments that every man has now become a statesman merely due to the weekly gazette. And this taste for news, Cavendish tells his king, does overheat your people extremely. But whatever people's views, Dooley suggests, there was an underlying doubt about the hall of mirrors created by multiple and competing sources of political information. In this series, I've been reporting on the work of a McGill University-based research project called Making Publics, which has spent the last five years exploring the early modern origins of our contemporary ideas of the public. Among these scholars, 
the credibility of news has been the special study of American historian David Randall. He's written a book about what made people believe or disbelieve military news in 16th and 17th century England. The starting point for such a study, he says, is the world before the early modern news revolution, a world in which what could be believed was entirely related to the social standing of the source. You start out believing something because the person who told it to you is honorable, and the honorable status is what's crucial. You, know, you actually start out with, you know, the king says it's so, you have to believe because that's royal authority, and if you disbelieve the news the king tells you by royal proclamation, treasonous. So if somebody is a gentleman like me, I will sort of implicitly believe him. Did people totally do this? Maybe, maybe not. But they sure as heck write as if that's what they're doing. And I, I do think to a considerable extent, yeah, they really believe it because an honorable person says it. And, you know, and if a dishonorable person, you know, a, a lower class person says something, you don't believe it. And if you to say you don't believe somebody's news is to say you don't, you're not honoring them. Against all this, you've got all the stuff which is oral, um, which is presumptively discreditable, you know, gossip, rumor. And you have laws against gossip and rumor, which are, again, sort of treasonous, slanderous, awful. And you can't even do gossip in favor of what the king says is true, because even using gossip at all isn't a good thing. Into this world, where honor and tittle-tattle stood absolutely opposed, flowed a flood of information. The modern printing press, invented in the 1450s, was the cause of causes, but the Reformation, rapid economic growth, and the expansion of the state all contributed to this outpouring. The result, according to David Randall, was that people had to begin to assess news on its own terms, and not just in view of the source. You have stuff which is, for, it's anonymous, that's really important you don't know who's writing it because it's somebody printed a letter, they didn't put their name to it, they reprinted a letter, they translated a letter from somewhere halfway across Europe. You have no means of knowing the honor of the person who wrote it, therefore you can't believe it. On the other hand, it's there. And it's you know more and more frequent. There's more and more news pamphlets, which are like individual newsletters printed up, then you like print a whole bunch of them together and then you, you know, hoopla, by hook and by crook, you've got the newspaper. And what I'm arguing is partly that the people who are putting together these, you know, the editors, the, the printers of these news pamphlets and newspapers were sort of inventing a new standard of credibility, which is, well, you can't really trust any of us presumptively, but, but you can't trust anybody, you know. Anybody could be lying to you, even a so-called honorable gentleman, you know softly, politely, they're making that point. And you have to read lots and lots of different things to arrive at the truth. So partly this is, you know, again, what the commercial people are putting forth. Partly it's what newsreaders are saying. And they're just sort of saying, look, there's just this endless flood of information. We've got to figure out how to deal with it. And I call this extensive credibility, my own little bit of jargon to add to the world. And basically, I, I do think that between about, say, 1600 and 1630, a largish number of people, at least in England, did start to 
at least say, you know, this is how you ought to do things. So you have to read everything. You have to read friends and enemies alike. And frankly, there's interesting things like, you know, why do you have the free press at all? You need to have a free press because the free press is the only way that you can be sure you're getting the entire range of news reports. And, and, and you have to have this shift in standard of credibility before you can even get there. This new standard of credibility was made necessary, above all, by the variety of news sources, from public bulletins to private letters. News editors appeared, and working together with printers, they produced news pamphlets or news books. At some point in the early 17th century, these became regularly published newspapers. And this was an evolution, in David Randall's view, brought about by editors reacting to the sheer accumulation of news reports. Why not just toss in another letter? You know, you can, it'll help sell. And, you know, there's a bit more labor, but there's suddenly there's an immense reward. So basically, you just have people who really just say, okay, we've got one letter, heck, we've got three letters, we can put them in, ideally on the same subject, but not always. And then after a while, you have so many of them, and again, you don't know who to trust, you begin to have people, editors, and in essence saying, okay, we are going to tell you what happened. There's been 10 letters, and I'm going to extract from them and tell you which is best, or at the very least, select and tell you these are the credible ones. And, and so, gosh, you know, you're beginning to have like these multiple letters of news printed up, I should always say the 1590s at the latest. By 1618, you have in the Netherlands this first Coranto, the sort of early newspaper, which is simply a two-sided broadsheet of the editor in the Netherlands has simply um, digested all the news from around Europe. Yeah, and then you're off to the races. It's either, a, you know, it's a digestive news, it's, you know, an assemblage of letters with an, impl an implicit editor behind it. The idea that you're going to cover all the news that's happened in the last week or so around Europe and not simply have a news report on a single subject, that's basically what you're going to have from that point on. The emergence of the newspaper was driven by an appetite for news that would continue to grow through the 17th century. Writing in 1710 in his journal, The Tatler, Richard Steele paints a portrait of a certain upholsterer, the greatest newsmonger in our quarter. This man, Steele reports, was up before dawn to read The Postman, a paper of the time, and was more inquisitive to know what passed in Poland than in his own family. He looked extremely thin in a dearth of news, Steele adds, and never enjoyed himself in a westerly wind, presumably because it would hold up the mails from Holland. The upholsterer, apparently, represented a social species that was so common by the early 18th century that Steele and his colleague Joseph Addison coined a special Latin term for the type a quidnunc, or what now? But similar figures were already being mocked and denounced a century earlier. There's lots and lots of satirical comment about everybody wants news, you know, everybody's a news junkie. All the words, you know, news, newsmongering, and so on, they show up in the language in the early 1600s. Um, you have satires by John Donne, plays by Ben Jonson, sermons, Thomas Lushington, 
everybody's hungry for the news, but but the news that matters is the good news, you know, and people ought to care about that. But yeah, so, so you can use it as sort of the uh, you know, starting point for your Sunday sermon. It's quite something. The other side of this satire was the anxiety expressed by numerous authorities about an informed public. Roger Lestrange, who was chief licenser of the press under the restored monarchy of Charles II in England, summed it up. Even supposing the press in order, and the people in their right wits, he wrote, a free press would still make the multitude too familiar with the actions and counsels of their superiors, and give them not only an itch, but a kind of license to be meddling with the government. And what Lestrange feared was in fact what was happening, David Randall says. You begin to get the idea that the private citizen has a duty to participate in public affairs. Part of this duty to participate in public affairs is a duty to know the news and pass it on. And this is, in its implications, you know, deeply subversive. It is, you know, citizens claiming the right to know, to read, to write about the king's business, the government's business. What David Randall calls the citizen's right to know the king's business was contested well into the 18th century, and in some areas remains contested. The British Parliament, for example, did not allow its proceedings to be printed until 1771, and then only after a prolonged battle. A place for journalists in the gallery was not conceded until 1834, thus ending a century of surreptitious and illegal entry. Jürgen Habermas reports the legend of Memory Woodfall, who earned his nickname and made his paper London's leading daily by his supposed ability to reproduce 16 columns of parliamentary speeches verbatim without notes, note-taking being forbidden. But there is wide agreement that in England, the rudiments of a public sphere were in place by the middle years of the 18th century, and that general access to political information was part of this new public life. The character of this public sphere, however, remains in dispute, as you will hear. The German philosopher Jürgen Habermas, whom I just quoted, gave the classic account in his book The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere. It appeared in German in 1962, but various complications delayed its appearance in English until 1989. The book argues that in the 18th century, private people came together to create, for the first time, a public sphere in which the state could be called to account. The word public began to describe the citizens rather than the state, although initially only propertied white males could claim the status of citizen. Many things went into the making of this bourgeois public, as Habermas calls it. He mentions, among other things, secure private property, the sentimental family, and a new emphasis on sensibility and subjective experience. He also stresses the spread of news and periodical publications, the exchange of private letters, and institutions of public sociability and discussion, like coffee houses, 
particularly in England. It was this last, the coffee house, that attracted the interest of Brian Cowan when he read Habermas's book. Coffee houses, for Habermas, typify the civility and polite conversation that are supposed to characterize the public sphere. But Cowan noticed that Habermas had done no primary research, relying mainly on older German histories of English literature. Cowan decided to investigate further. The result was a book called The Social Life of Coffee, which appeared in 2005. Today, he holds the Canada Research Chair in Early Modern British History at McGill and is a member of the Making Publics Project, whose work informs this ideas series. He found considerable variety amongst British coffee houses, he told me, but with certain common features. The early coffee houses in Britain generally were places where you will find coffee being drunk and newspapers being provided for their customers. And this would be printed newspapers and also manuscript newspapers. So that's the stuff that Habermas fixates on. And, and he was right to do so. I mean, they were new, interesting institutions which had not really existed before their inception. They begin, the first coffee house begins in London in the 1650s. There are a handful of coffee houses in England in the interregnum era of the 1650s, but they really explode in the 1660s. And London, above all, becomes the place where you find coffee houses. Aside from Istanbul, which we often forget is another European city, where, in fact, the coffee house had a longer history, an Ottoman history, London was the city, the European city, in which you would find by far more coffee houses than any other. There were so many, indeed, that Brian Cowan found 37 establishments under the name of the Turk's Head alone. Coffee houses became meeting places for those with literary and scientific interests, and diarists of the period, like Samuel Pepys and Robert Hooke, a fellow of the Royal Society, record numerous visits. But the coffeehouse vogue was also controversial, as was the new drug itself and initially faced considerable opposition. Defenders of coffeehouse sociability and coffee drinking argue that it is a civil drink. And that's an argument that had to be made because there are many people who say, oh, it's not civil at all. In fact, you drink coffee, it makes people giddy and overexcited and prone to sedition. And you know there are many people who are arguing in the later 17th century that it's a very dangerous drug and we should not be exposing ourselves to it and we should ban these coffee houses and you know we should expunge it from society uh, but that argument doesn't win coffee houses were attacked as centers of sedition and places one commentator said of promiscuous company oxford and cambridge at first forbade their students from entering but by the 18th century coffee houses had become an accepted part of the landscape integrated into the social life swirling around and through them. Most coffee houses were rooms, and I think that's worth keeping in mind too, because when we talk of the coffee house, you get this image of a distinct place that's separate from all of the other activities and spaces around it. You know, today if we go to a coffee shop 
it's a commercially distinct space, it's zoned as such, you know you're in a special place. That sense of distinctness didn't exist in the 17th century. You would go into these houses in which there might be tables laid out. In the 17th century, they tended to be common tables, which would then facilitate, of course, discussion amongst different people who happen to be popping into the coffee house. But it would be a room in somebody else's house. And so you know, certainly the upper levels would be places where people lived. There might be kitchens nearby. People would be coming and going. Lodgers staying in the building might be coming and going uh, in and out of the coffee room in the larger house. People came and went. Women came and went. Tradesmen came and went. And I mean, that was part of the fluidity of the coffee house situation. Coffee houses were part of the social flow of the time, but each had its distinctive character. A wig will no more go to the cocoa tree, or Osinda's, one observer wrote in the 1720s, than a Tory will be seen at the coffee houses of St. James. Various different coffee houses had different social characteristics, and you certainly find various different cliques associating with different coffee houses, especially in London, because London was big enough to allow for the development of various different cliquish coffee houses. So you would get a place like Will's Coffee House in Covent Garden, which was known as the Wits Coffee House or the Poets Coffee House, and this was uh, the favorite coffee house of people like John Dryden, who famously sat by the fireplace at Will's. Uh, you also had commercial coffee houses in the city of London, uh, like Jonathan's or Garraway's, which began as early clearing houses for the stock market. And so um, stock jobbing and stock trading began in some of these early coffee houses. Lloyd's Coffee House becomes an insurance market. So there's another chapter in my book. So you mean is, that's the origin of the present day Lloyd's? Absolutely. London. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. And um, it was Edward Lloyd, uh, who was a coffee house keeper in the 1690s, who is, he founds his coffee house in the city of London. And in order to make his place more attractive and more distinctive to his customers, he produces a newspaper called Lloyd's News which provides shipping news. Insurance traders are then allowed to read this paper and work out their, you know, their rates uh, accordingly. And so Lloyd's becomes a place where these insurance brokers are doing their business and they can talk to one another, they can trade information. So that's a very important aspect of particularly the later 17th century coffee houses. They become information markets. These various different cliques within London are trading information amongst one another, whether that be amongst the poets of Wills where they're, you know, critics of, uh, of drama or, or poetry or trading information about the latest play or the latest poem or the latest work of, of literature that's come out. You know, what's good, what's bad, what's hot, what's not. Insurance traders are doing the same in, in Lloyd's. You know, you have various different interest groups congregating in various different coffee houses. And the coffee house is allowed to do so partly because they have this reputation for being sober and civil places. One of the reasons people went to coffee houses, Brian Cowan remarked earlier, was to read the news, both from printed newspapers and, interestingly, from manuscript newsletters. The newspaper, by the 18th century, had been around for some time, 
and one might easily suppose that by then it would have supplanted and replaced handwritten sources. But this was not the case, Cowan says. The sharing of information through manuscript actually tended to have greater authority than print, which that's something that's that recent research has uncovered, I think, uh, which is worth keeping in mind because today when we think of the newspaper and the author- and as an authoritative source, you know, all the news that's fit to print from the New York Times, the paper of record, that's trustworthy, whereas, say, the Internet is perhaps less trustworthy because anybody can post anything on the Internet or, you know, that's gossip. It's, it's not as trustworthy. Well, Early modern people had the same problem. What's trustworthy news and information? But they had a different sense of media hierarchy, if you want to call it that. And manuscript was much more trustworthy than print at the time. Because with manuscript, you knew, generally speaking, who was writing. You could take their word for it. You placed greater authority on the written word than you would in the printed word because who did the printing? Well, these mechanic artisans, they made mistakes. And so printed news was much less trustworthy than manuscript. And of course, printed news also for most of the 16th and 17th centuries had to be regulated and so there was a form of censorship of one sort or another so the really juicy important information was much less likely to make it into printed form than it would in manuscript and in fact many coffeehouse keepers made money by writing their own newsletters and circulating them and so news writing and news circulation became very deeply connected with the coffeehouse. Another activity that became connected with coffeehouses was letter writing. The post office was still in its infancy, and coffee houses were convenient places to deposit and receive letters. There's the development of a post office in the late 17th century, and by the 1680s you have a penny post system. So a post office exists. However, the system of modern street addresses and knowing where to find people did not exist. And so often the most convenient place to find somebody or to deliver something like a letter to somebody would be to leave it at their local coffee house because they would be known to go there and that's where they would spend more of their time. The early modern lifestyle would often be that you, I mean, the the rooms where people lived, the famous sort of garrets, you know, Boswell's garret of the late 18th century, which is generally nothing much to speak of. But then he might saunter in in the morning to his local coffee house and pick up the news, perhaps letters that are written to him, and they would be left at the bar and they would be addressed to him at the local coffee house. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on Sirius Satellite Radio 137 and cbc.ca. Our program is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley. Brian Cowan's research reveals the coffee house as a vital social institution. 
a center of both literary culture and business activity, a hub of news production and consumption, a mail depot, and even a living room for those like James Boswell, who might saunter in from a garret to cramp to afford much living space. But will it do the work that Jürgen Habermas asks of it? In the new public sphere, Habermas says, people met in what he calls their common quality as human beings. He does not claim, obviously, that unequal social status was permanently overcome, but he does suggest that it was at times suspended or dissolved, one might say, in a rational discourse in which what was said was more important than who said it. And the coffee house for Habermas was one of the main sites of this new equality outside the state. That's a central part of Habermas's argument, is that the idea of a bourgeois public sphere was based upon the notion that there would be a social space and a social moment in which individuals could and did come together as equals with the pretense of equality, at least. You know, there would be a moment. Uh, I mean, to my mind, the, the classic sort of moment of a bourgeois public sphere today would be the seminar room in which you know, people come together in universities on the pretense that all of our ideas and knowledge is equal and we debate as equals in a seminar room. That's a special space in which that activity can take place. And the contribution of a full professor and that of a graduate student or an undergraduate can theoretically be equal. That's the sort of social fiction that we all engage in. And his argument was that that sort of notion began in the early modern period in places such as the coffee house in England and the salon particularly in France. I mean, these were the two institutions that he really singles out as uh, special, unique, and important, and importantly formative for this thing that he calls the bourgeois public sphere. So I sought to investigate that. And, you know, as one might expect, it wasn't necessarily so. There was a lot of violence going on in, uh, particularly in late 17th century coffee houses. Uh, there was a lot of heated debate. There were uh, a lot of attempts by authorities at every level of government, from the monarchy right down to local authorities, to regulate coffee houses, either to suppress them outright or to control activities that were taking place within them. So there was a lot of concern about restraining the activity that took place in coffee houses. Now, having said all that, the development of this ideal of, you know, this rational civil conversation, which Habermas took as the basis for his notion of the development of a bourgeois public sphere, does exist in early modern discourse. And that's worth recognizing because it is an ideal that exists there in the minds of the early modern people that we're studying as well. And I've tried in the work that I've done to recognize that and to emphasize that as well. But it is an ideal. And I think that's something that we as historians and as critics of the period need to keep in mind. It's that in all times and places, there are tensions between social and cultural ideals and the lived social and cultural reality. Distinguishing the ideal from the real in historical settings 
becomes important, Brian Cowan argues, when we use these historical settings as a measure of our own time. Habermas, for example, sees the bourgeois public sphere as bearing a utopian promise that was betrayed by the rise of powerful mass media, primarily interested in manipulating their publics. When we condemn spin in political discourse, there's often an implication that it ought to be otherwise, and once was. But was it, is Cowan's question. To be a manager of public opinion, you know, the, today's spin doctors and such who are seen as absolutely central to managing any political campaign, you know, their, their status is always questionable because, you know, you're not supposed to be able to spin material. You're supposed to be able to present the most rational, critical arguments to the public, and the public will then, in a rational and critical manner, respond appropriately. But, of course, we all know that it doesn't work that way, and that information arguments need to be spun. Now, Habermas's argument, of course, I mean, he recognized that as well, but he saw it as a particular condition of late capitalist modernity, that that happens over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries, that as capitalist development proceeds, the bourgeois public sphere becomes, you know, as he says, colonized by capitalist interests, by the spin doctors of the culture industry. You know, he comes out of the Frankfurt School, which was very critical of that sort of industry. Now, I think what certainly my research has uncovered, and I think that, you know, as we understand the early modern period better, we've realized that that kind of spin doctoring, that kind of manipulation has always been there. And that this isn't a historical development that you can trace precisely to a moment in a Marxist sense to the development of late capitalism. This has been always and ever present in the development of modern public opinion. In Brian Cowan's view, Jürgen Habermas idealizes the 18th century public sphere. And Cowan's current research has only reinforced this opinion. It concerns the trial, in 1710, of a Tory clergyman by the name of Henry Sacheverell. To understand the case, you need to know that England, in 1710, was just over 20 years removed from the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688, in which the absolutist and pro-Catholic James II was overthrown and replaced by the firmly Protestant and more progressive William of Orange. Sacheverell was part of the Tory reaction to this revolution, and his incendiary sermons put him on the wrong side of the government of the day. He was impeached in the House of Commons and then tried in the House of Lords for high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, the specific charges, the articles of impeachment, were related to things that he had said in sermons in uh, 1709 and 1710, highly political sermons, which he had preached, the most famous one being on Gunpowder Day, November 5th, in St. Paul's Cathedral in 1709, uh, in which he erails against the current constitution in church and state. It's an attack on the toleration of dissenters. It's an attack on the Whig government of the day and an attack on the validity of the glorious revolution. So he was pressing on all of the hot 
constitutional issues of the day. He was obviously gunning for attention, and he got it in a big way. The sermon is subsequently printed and distributed in large numbers. It's the bestseller. It's one of the great bestsellers of the 18th century. And so the government of the day felt like they could not ignore it. They had to do something about it. They put him on trial. They impeach him. The parliament at the time was dominated by Whigs. So really, the conclusion of the trial was foregone. I mean, it was known that he was going to get convicted because the, the Whigs had the votes. But what is interesting is the way in which public opinion is manipulated in the course of the trial and the way in which Sacheverell, over the course of his trial, emerges as a martyr for the Tory cause and becomes a great popular hero. So my interest in studying the trial is in studying the emergence of Sacheverell as a popular celebrity of his day. The finding against Henry Sacheverell was, everything considered, quite mild. He was suspended from the ministry for three years and the offending sermons publicly burned. But political passions were so inflamed in England at the time that even this touched off what were called the Sacheverell riots, in which the places of worship of dissenters from the Church of England were attacked. Sacheverell, Brian Cowan thinks, was a symbol a man whose image lent itself to manipulation by himself and others. He was handsome and charismatic, and his doctorate in divinity from Oxford gave him a cultural authority that was deployed with great effect by those who adopted Dr. Sacheverell as their figurehead. The power of Sacheverell's image can be clearly seen, Cowan says, when he is contrasted with one of his great antagonists, Daniel Defoe, remembered today mainly for his fiction, but at the time of Sacheverell's trial, a political pen-for-hire in the service of the Queen's chief minister, Robert Harley. Daniel Defoe, in some ways, is Sacheverell's bête noir. Now, we, we think of Daniel Defoe as the great novelist, the author of Robinson Crusoe and such, but he was known for most of his early life as a propagandist. He was one of Robert Harley's hired guns, and during you know the Sacheverell trial, he is writing day and night for a newspaper called The Review, and he is attacking Sacheverell again and again and again. And you know he's scoring points. He's uh, he's creating a public around his newspaper. That's true. But I think it's interesting that we have very few, if any, contemporary representations of what Daniel Defoe looked like. We don't know what Daniel Defoe looked like. He was not a publicly recognizable celebrity in a way that we know absolutely what Sacheverell looked like because his face was reproduced again and again and again. And his portrait is, it becomes a bestseller. People buy his portrait and they hang it up on their walls. And in fact, in Hogarth's Harlot's Progress, you can see that the harlot has Sacheverell's picture hanging on her wall. So Sacheverell's charisma, his personality, his success in making a public endures long after he dies. And one of the things that's amazing about the Sacheverell affair and Sacheverell's celebrity is the way in which his image and his celebrity gets disseminated in a variety of different early 18th century media that include but are not limited to the printed and manuscript materials that have been the bread and butter of source material for 
scholars of the emergence of a public sphere in this period, but they include things like statues, little statuettes of Sacheverell. And so I've spent a lot of time over the last year looking at these little Sacheverell statuettes, which I've jokingly referred to as the Sacheverell action figures, because they are about the size of an action figure. <laughs> Henry Sacheverell bobblehead doll. That's right. I, if, if there were one, that would be brilliant. But uh, I haven't found the Sacheverell bobblehead doll yet, but they certainly... Little Sacheverell statuettes existed. Ceramics, uh, dishes with Sacheverell's face on it existed. Metals, tobacco stoppers with Sacheverell's head on them were made. If you have ladies' handkerchiefs being produced with Sacheverell's face on it, you have fans being produced with Sacheverell's face on it. I have unfortunately not been able to locate an existing example of the Sacheverell chamber pot but we have contemporary evidence that suggests that these did exist. It's a little bit tricky because some of this material is satirical and, and you wonder whether it's Presumably would have joke. been circulated by his opponents. Yes. Wig ladies, <laughs> apparently, uh, they took it upon themselves. This is, and this is part of the intense fervor, this partisan fervor of the day, is that you have both pro and anti Sacheverell items being distributed. But yes, uh, apparently wig ladies of the day took it upon themselves to demonstrate their disapproval for the doctor by having chamber pots made with his face uh, emblazoned upon it so that they could piss upon the face of Dr. Sacheverell. The case of Henry Sacheverell for Brian Cowan represents the coming of age of a new kind of political culture in Britain, a culture in which politics and commerce began to interpenetrate politics providing new motives for commercial production, commerce providing new avenues for political expression. The driver in this development, he thinks, was politics. It was a time of intense and unstable political feeling, and the underlying cause, in his view, was the memory of regicide, the killing of a king. On January 30, 1649, as the result of civil war, King Charles I had been executed, and England had been 11 years without a monarch, until the Restoration in 1660, when his son, Charles II, was returned to the throne. The regicide is a very important cultural moment, obviously, in British history. It's really unique in European history, and it obviously had a very powerful resonance in English and British politics. That much is well known, although the ramifications of that still need to be fully developed, actually. Partly because the trauma of it was so great that the, the restoration impulse to forget the regicide was overwhelming. And so many historians, in a certain way, took on board that restoration impulse to forget, to the erasure of the regicidal moment. But of course, something that traumatic couldn't ever be erased. And so there's, this creates a fault line within English political culture that exists, I think, at least into you know, the, the late 18th century. It is now possible, conceivable, to kill the king and to have a government without a king. And that is a, a fear that every reigning monarch has, I could lose my head. If I screw things up, 
I could be executed. It's certainly very much on the mind of Charles II and James II because their father had been executed. But I think it's quite clear from the work that I've done in the 18th century that it doesn't go away after the Glorious Revolution. And it is a burning issue for the Hanoverian monarchs as well as the Stuart monarchs. This is uh, a very important part of 17th and 18th century British political culture. The killing of the king resonated, as Brian Cowan sees it, because it kept insinuating the possibility that things could be otherwise. The king had been killed. There had been a republic. It could happen again. And this fear, Cowan thinks, haunted politics into the reign of Queen Anne in the early 18th century and beyond. On the Tory side, it would be you know dissenting fanatics who are out there plotting to kill the king, who are celebrating the anniversary of the regicide. I mean, that's something that really explodes and really actually in Queen Anne's reign is this fear that there are these calves' heads clubs, these supposed clubs who meet on January the 30th every year and they slaughter a, a calf and they roast its head and they eat it and toast to the memory of Oliver Cromwell and the regicides and that they are, you know, that this was a glorious moment to be celebrated. Now, this is a, a paranoid fear of the royalist imagination, but it's telling, I think, that that exists. You know, there's this fear that this could happen and that these guys are out there. The evidence that these people existed is very few and far between. I mean, historians still debate whether there really were Cavs Heads clubs. I'm skeptical myself. I have yet to see any firm evidence that demonstrates that a proper Cavs Head club existed. But I've seen plenty of evidence that demonstrates that there was a big fear that these people existed and they were out there and that they were dangerous. And I think that's telling. You know, that tells us a lot about the nature of the political culture of the period. Calves Head Clubs, where bloodthirsty Republicans ate calves' brains and toasted Oliver Cromwell, was a Tory fantasy. But the more tolerant and progressive Whigs had their nightmares too. Dr. Sacheverell, for example. What was felt to be at stake was the very nature of the political order, and not just who would form the next government. Politics, consequently, was extremely fraught. The problem in Britain in the years after the Glorious Revolution is you have this intense competition between various different political interests and even within political interests in which the ground for public opinion is constantly shifting. And so persuasion is absolutely essential to managing you know, the, the politics of the period. But the problem becomes how do you do so in a way that prevents everything from breaking down and from civil war from breaking out. So you could say that the manipulation of public opinion in this period was a necessary evil and that it prevented Britain from relapsing into civil war and that therefore the growth of the political culture industry, the political spinmeisters of the day, was what was necessary to prevent further bloodshed. And 18th century commentators do notice this. You know, the continental commentators, particularly the French, are amazed at the British system. Voltaire spends much of his early life in England 
learning English, admiring the English political system, and he sees it as much more free and open than the French system under which he, he grew up. And that Anglomania becomes an important aspect of French political culture as well. And they think, wow, the British have really figured it out. They've figured a way in which public opinion can thrive and they don't kill each other any longer. Now, that may have become more obvious to people as the 18th century carried on, but it was not obvious to the people who were living in early 18th century Britain at all. They were deadly afraid of a relapse of yet another civil war. And Britain did not look at that time like the stable government that it might look like to French observers of the later 18th century. This feeling that civil peace was precarious is the context in which Brian Cowan wants to situate the politics that developed around the trial of Henry Sacheverell. It's easy to see the flood of Sacheverell merchandise as a commercialization, he says, but he suspects that political motives were equally crucial. I think, actually, it's as important to investigate the politicization of commerce as it is to investigate the commercialization of politics. So I'm as interested in developing in you know, my studies, of particularly of cases like Sacheverell, how politicization was driving this commercialization, that the political divides, the Whig-Tory divide, was creating a public that would then allow for people to want to buy portraits of Sacheverell, would want to buy little Sacheverell action figures. That it's actually the politics is creating a market for the commerce. And the, the distinctive thing about late 17th, early 18th century Britain is in fact its strangely fractured politicization. And a lot of that relates to you know, that post-regicidal dilemma. The intensity of political competition and the fragility of political order that Brian Cowan has been evoking seem a far cry from the world of polite letters conjured up in the sources on which Jürgen Habermas relied for his portrait of the public sphere. Among the best known of these sources are the writings of the journalists Joseph Addison and Richard Steele, who between them produced the periodicals The Guardian, The Tatler, and The Spectator. These journals advocated a cooling down of the overheated political and religious debates that Cowan describes. They promoted and modeled civility, restraint, and good manners. Addison and Steele wrote about the Sacheverell trial and its violent aftermath, trying to make the voice of reason heard above the din. Was it? The answer, for Brian Cowan, depends on the distinction he drew earlier between the ideal and the real. People like Addison Steele, who I've studied, you know, were trying out of the fervor debate of the Sacheverell trial to carve out a space for rational debate. You know, they had an ideal there. They didn't succeed in the short run, in fact, but you could say that they succeeded in the long run and that their essays became an established part of the English literary political canon. They become seen as you know, classic examples of polite letters for you know, generation upon generation of 
of school children uh, throughout the Anglophone world, that they have a, a longer afterlife. So in the long run, that history of that striving towards achieving a civilized world of rational, civilized political debate has always existed as well. And that's, that's worth keeping in mind. It's just that it's always been a struggle. And more often than not, it's been a losing battle. And I think that's a sobering thought. So you could say that Habermas got it right. It's just that his historical narrative was romantically skewed in that it's a, you know, his story is one of a rise and fall, you know, the rise and fall of the bourgeois public sphere and the way in which the capitalist culture industry ultimately colonizes and destroys what was once a pristine, beautiful, valuable thing. I think the, the work that we've done demonstrates that there never was a golden age for the bourgeois public sphere and that it was from the very moment of its inception corrupt, corrupt and corruptible. And therefore, that golden age, that enlightenment ideal, it just never existed. Brian Cowan, a member of Making Publics, and professor of history at McGill. When the origins of the modern public continues, I'll look at literary scholar Michael Warner's influential book, Publics and Counterpublics. On Ideas, you've listened to The Origins of the Modern Public by David Cayley. His series continues next week. It's also available as a podcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Production was by David Cayley, Dave Field, and Bernie Lucht. To find out about upcoming Ideas programs, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The Hourly News is next on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio.